You're listening to highlights from the creative process interview with William Irvine. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Zeno of Citium was the first Stoic. He created it. He put together components of some other then existing schools of philosophy and started his own school. The interesting thing is you can pick up and start reading them and you will very quickly sort of say, oh, I see what they're doing and I see why it's relevant to my life and I see how it can be useful to my life. There's so much philosophy that that simply won't be true of. Certainly stuff that's being written in universities today is highly technical, but from their point of view, they were out to reach a wide audience and help people live better lives, help people flourish as human beings. So. I regard myself as simply the messenger. My goal was to tell other people, once I realized the impact it was having in my life, share it with other people and say, you know, you got to give this a try. You know, if you ask the Stoics, which is better, reaching a broad audience and helping them live a better life or getting a lot of publications in philosophy journals, they would have said, well, the first, of course, you want to help people. And I've come away with the conclusion that they're right and I'm joining them in that cause. I'm always on a day-to-day basis. I'm shocked by how much there is to worry about. There's always been stuff to worry about. But, you know, I look at what's happening to the environment, looking what's happening to society, what's happening politically. There's a lot to worry about. So what's the stoic advice? That stoic advice is called the dichotomy of control. First step is to say, you know what? There's things I can control and things I can't. I took the liberty of saying there's actually three different things. There's things you have complete control over. And one of them is your values. There's things you have no control over, like whether it rains or not. And there's things you have some but not complete control over, like whether you win the upcoming tennis match. There's things you can control over. You can control how hard you practice and what you do in your practice and the strategy you take into the game and the fact that you didn't party hard the night before the game. What can't you control? How your opponent plays and how he trained and all of those other things. So Stoics would say, just focus on the part you can control. Do your best. And you know what? Whatever happens after that, if you did what you could with what you had, where you were, you were a success. You were a success because there's nothing more you could have done. You're not to blame. So when it comes to anxiety over the ongoing events, the news items and so on, realize you have no control over a lot of them. So it's simply wasted effort on your part in order for you to concern yourself with them. You've got other things to think about. I mean, one of the things you have control over and you can work on this in practices is your own response to that news and what you do with that news. So I've talked about the Stoics, how they would respond to the notion of heaven that was infinite, where you lived forever. You never had to face death again. And my guess is people who ended up in heaven would be absolutely miserable. Everybody thinks, now that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be so happy. Nah, chances are you're going to be miserable. And there are at least two reasons for that. Number one is if you take your earthly personality with you to heaven, you're going to be just as difficult to please in heaven as you were on earth. Ah, somebody else is sitting by the right hand of Jesus. I thought that was my turn to do that. And the other thing is wasted days won't matter because you have an eternity of days in which you can waste. While you're here, while you're alive each day, 
is one day that you won't have to live over again. So here's an analogy for that. And that is, if you have a vessel, if the vessel has no limit, has infinite capacity, the vessel can never be filled. But your life, if it's a vessel with finite capacity, it can be filled, but it has to have the finite capacity in order to achieve a kind of fulfillment. So if somebody said magically, we can give you life forever, I think the quality of your life would subsequently decrease in dramatic fashion. Another thing that you address, you called it the hedonism gap, the approach to not becoming so numb to our joy that it's no longer joy and how we can appreciate it fully. Yeah. So there's a thing called the hedonic treadmill where people, whatever they have, they want more. They work hard to get more. And then when they get it, do they live happily ever after? No, they kind of sit down, then their subconscious mind goes to work and it says, you know, to be really happy, you need, and then fill in the blank. So I describe it as the gap theory of happiness. So why are we unhappy? Because what we have is not the same as what we want. What we want is a step higher than what we have. So what do we do? We do the obvious thing. We work really hard. So what we have rises to the level of what we want, which is a fancy way of saying we get what we want. Unfortunately, as soon as we do that, a new gap opens. Mind, subconscious mind comes up with a new thing for us to want. So a lot of people have singularly unsatisfying lives because they're always chasing the thing that they're convinced is going to make them happy. Uh, stop taking it for granted. Realize the situation you would be in if you didn't even have that. And it takes a lot of the sting out. And I seem to be in that stage of life, you know, where I know I'm supposed to, at some level, want a whole bunch of stuff. I could get it if I wanted it. It's just, I don't want that. You know, that would just be more stuff and I don't need more stuff. You know, people take aim at happiness. I don't know if you can actually do that. If you can have a recipe for attaining happiness, happiness is something that just happens as a byproduct of something else going on in your life. And that is having a day where you're experiencing equanimity. You don't have this abundance of negative emotions where you value the things you've already got, where you value the relationships you've got, where you feel good inside your own body. You like being who you are. And I think if all that happens, then suddenly, you know, it'll dawn on me, gosh, I guess I'm happy, right? But other people say, ah, to be happy, I must do X. It's like there's this magic connector there. I don't think that exists. And I know people who will tell me, but you shouldn't be satisfied. You shouldn't accept that. And what they're basically saying is, oh, you should go through life dissatisfied when satisfaction is within your grasp. That's crazy talk, right? I have retired friends who can't understand it. I say, well, I'm sort of semi-retired. I'm still writing. Well, why? Well, because I find it fulfilling. How did you transition from your beliefs and practices to writing a book for an audience? I made a few little changes in basic Stoic principle. And one of them is Epictetus describes the dichotomy of control. He says, well, there are things you can control and things you can't. And he had in mind, there are things you can control and things you have absolutely no control over. And it just right away, I see that that isn't the case because tennis, 
business. There are things you can control, how you train. There are things you can't control, what the other guy does. There are things in the middle there. So I added that middle and turned it into a trichotomy of control, three parts instead of two parts. There were Stoics who rebelled and said, no, you know, that's a mistake to do it that way. The other thing is, even if the dichotomy is true, as a prescription on how to live, it's terrible prescription to give people because what are they going to do? They're going to say, well, there are things I can control and things I can't, and I shouldn't worry about things I can't control. Ah, well, then let's see. Can you control whether your boss fires you? No, I don't have absolute control over that. Well, then don't show up for work. Who cares? So it's terrible advice from that point of view because in life, the biggest thing that is going to affect the quality of your life in the outcome of things and success and failure is what you do with things you have some but not complete control over. I mean, I would put above that things you have absolute control over, like choosing your values. You should be very careful. You should for sure give that thought. You should be very careful what values you pick. But other than that, there's just this middle ground. You're going to have people who are frustrated because they get the things they want, like the latest model iPhone. And then a year later, oh no, there's one that's even better than this. And you got to realize we're living in a dream world of our ancestors. If you could travel back in time and meet your great, great, great grandfather and show him your cell phone, you know, he would be amazed. It makes pictures. Wait a minute. It makes moving pictures. Wait a minute. It makes sound. Wait a minute. You can talk to somebody in Hong Kong and see their face as you do it, right? Oh, it adds math. So we're living in what they would regard as just this heavenly kind of thing. And yet we remain unsatisfied. I'm unfortunately as a Stoic, I'm not supposed to be a pessimist, but the more I think about it, the more pessimistic I become because it seems like people are becoming less thoughtful. I'm trying to think of the most polite words I can come up with here. Less thoughtful. And I think the internet and in particular social media have played a huge role in that, that people fall down rabbit holes. And then once they're down, it's very difficult to get them back out again. It's like becoming a member of a cult. You just can't reason with them. And so you can tell people, okay, we've got a problem. So first step used to be, well, we've got a problem and people would say, well, what's the evidence of that? And I guess global warming, you know, the first signs, it's now called climate change. It was called global warming. You know how science works. The evidence accumulates a bit at a time. Now, people don't realize that because they're only exposed in classes to settled science. That means when the debate is over, then they're taught that in a textbook. But there's a slow process that gets you there. But just for people who deny that it's a problem or even worse who claim it's some kind of conspiracy and then the question is can you reason with them is there any evidence you can provide them with will change their mind and in a growing number of cases the answer seems to be no it's just not clear whether there's a way out so stoicism is relentlessly rational so for stoic strategies to work you have to be a rational person you have to be able to think your way to conclusions so if people aren't rational, Stoicism doesn't work. And the Stoics themselves would have been the first to admit that, that it relies on rationality. But my perception is that people are becoming increasingly less rational, less willing to look at evidence, more dismissive of evidence. And then there are people who say, well, that's what you say reality is. I think it's something different. Well, do you have evidence? No, I don't need evidence. It's just what I think. So that for me is a deeply frustrating state of affairs. So as you think about the future and education 
and as you say, that kind of world we're leaving the next generation. What are some teachers who have been important to you beyond the Stoics in your immediate life? And what for you are the importance of the humanities? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Okay, so I'm on the constant lookout as a Stoic. I'm on the constant lookout for mentors. I refer to them as mentors and they're usually limited mentors. And these are people who know a whole bunch about when I am in their presence and realize, ooh, this person knows a lot about this. I shut up and take notes is what I do and ask lots of questions because they've got this figured out. It's just simply the easiest, best way to learn stuff. And secondly, you got to be able to communicate what you know to other people. And it's easy for somebody to have one of those abilities, but not the other, in which case they're going to be an ineffective teacher. Same is true of coaches. You know, the language thing, they'll tell you to do something and to them, they know perfectly well what they're trying to tell you, except you're hearing the words in a different way. I knew from my time in the classroom that when we would get to an important concept, I would have like five different ways to say it. So I would say it what I thought was the obvious way. And I'd say, okay, everybody on top of this. And a hand would go up. No, I don't understand. I would say it in the second way, you know, and by the third or fourth way, they'd say, oh, I get you. Why didn't you say that to begin with? And the answer is because different people are going to hear things differently. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in interviews and exhibitions, click on subscribe. Thanks for listening.